listening to The Caravan of Hope, promoting peace, safety and well-being for every human on earth. Welcome to this episode of the Caravan of Hope, coming to you from Aotearoa, Dunedin, in New Zealand. And today is the 20th of December, so we're just in the lead up to Christmas. And um, I'm Brent Caldwell, and I'm COVID Omedic. And um, welcome to this podcast, our last before the Christmas season, and probably if there was ever a time of year when um, the situation is poignant, it, it has to be Christmas. Now. I just noticed that we've changed our introductory music there. Yes, yeah, I, I heard this song, uh, A Lot of Love, by Neil Young, um, which is sung by the Toronto Choir and Sarah Harmer. Um, and the message just seems so poignant and relevant that actually this situation is never going to end by hatred and acts of aggression. It's going to end through love and forgiveness um, and it's going to take a lot of love and not only this situation but other places around the world like the Sudan or mm. countless other places where there's the warfare happening. Mm. So if you're interested in um, perhaps looking at YouTube um, you can just find it um, just search for a choir 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 Epic Nights, Neil Young's Lot of Love with Sarah Harmer. And um, for copywriting purposes, I understand you've been in touch with um, Sarah's people. Um, I actually was in touch with the choir people, yes, and they said it would be fine. They'd love that to happen. Um, and in the past, incidentally, they did some fundraising for Syria in 2016 and actually raised, I think, quite a lot of money and sponsored two Syrian families to go and live in Canada. So. Wow. Okay, well, there's a great way to take some action. And and they have another song which they did, which was the the um, zombie song by... The Cranberries. The Cranberries, mm. I always get that wrong, which is, again, another song about warfare which was happening in Ireland where people mm. are getting killed and the zombies are the, are the people who are still trying to kill everybody and solve things by force. Well, and we've seen a lot of force in Gaza in the last um, seven days, haven't we? We have. We have. It's still continuing, unfortunately. Um, and, and it seems to be getting worse, really, in that not only is the, the, the bombing and the shooting continuing, but actually people now are, are getting to the point of starving and they're getting disease and, you know, they don't have medicines, they don't mm. have food, they don't have water. Mm. If you see whether... The pictures of the the few aid trucks that are getting through, as soon as they come through, people are jumping onto them and pulling stuff off. Yeah, yeah. And I guess that's probably um, what I've been thinking about in the last week is, um, and, I, and I think we talked about this last week, about how we're down here in New Zealand, what can we do? Mm. Um, 
obviously we can do all those things we've talked about email petitions uh, march but i was just saying to my wife yesterday um why don't we just make a donation rather than um you know give presents that we probably won't remember in a couple of months where we could provide some life support or some yeah. humanitarian aid so i think that's kind of what we're going to do and i've and i have noticed there's a plethora of opportunities all across Instagram and social media. Yep. You've got the UNHCR, you've got UNICEF, you've got... Médecins um, Sans Frontières. Yeah, um, so many. So I don't think it's a matter of um, choosing the one that's most appropriate. It's probably um, about choosing the one that's going to directly affect um, the people. That, yeah. and, and in a way, I guess, um, Med- uh, Médecins Sans Frontières is, is probably a good one because... Um, we, we want to save lives. Yeah, because people are dying, not only people who've been mm. shot or mm. people who've been wounded, but actually people with normal illnesses who... Yeah. There was um, something on the TV of, of a little child. The, the dad was going, we don't have medicines for my child. He's, he's going to die because he can't... I think it was he couldn't urinate. Mm. And, I mean, that's appalling. Yeah. Something there is so today we're going to just maybe follow up on a couple of things. Um, we're going to talk about um, Saturday's Peace March here held in Dunedin and I noticed there was reporting of other marches across the country and around the world So um, and they are continuing. Uh, maybe talk a wee bit about media coverage and then last week we touched on that idea of the United Nations and a reboot yeah, um, and I'm wondering whether you might talk a wee bit about where your thinking is with that. Mm. Um, I don't think you're the only person on the planet who's currently thinking that way, but um, it might be good to start that conversation and plant some seeds in our listeners' minds to maybe have a look at it. And because um, I know from our discussions prior to recording, we looked at um, peacekeeping, and I learned quite a fair bit about what the UN is doing in peacekeeping. Right, um, yeah. and once you research it, you, you suddenly see how ha- how their hands are tied. Anyway, we can talk about that later. So mm. um, Saturday's Peace March here in Dunedin. Yeah. Um, it was the first march I'd been on. I know you've been on a few. Yes, I've probably been on about five, I think. Um, Six, maybe. And what was lovely for me was... Um, making that connection uh, between what we talked about last week because I did go back through our local newspaper and our local media to see what the reportage was like and it was there that I discovered that um, some families that I know quite well through um, the schools that I used to work in have lost in one case um, 21 relatives That's horrendous. and I thought uh, what can I do to help them and going on the march well, it was it was lovely because I saw them at the march and I got to have a chat to them and they were just so grateful that um, that that people were there. Yeah. Um, and I, I think, if anything, we we have to remember that we we need to support those people from Palestine who are living here in Dunedin. That's right. Um, they, they feel so helpless and so powerless and yeah. I remember when support. I lived in London, I used to jump every time the phone would ring in the middle of the night. Yeah, thinking. Well, when I was in London, I'd think, oh, something's happened at home. Right. And then, you know, can you imagine it's Christmas here in New Zealand and you'd just be waiting to hear what's happening for your relatives? I I guess what I learned in the march was that um, the impact is worldwide. It's not, you know, if I think of all those 
relatives that who were marching mm. on Saturday, um, who who were they thinking about and holding up photos of their of of, of their loved ones who've who've been who who've been um, killed or injured? It was um, yeah, it was it was really telling. And the silent part of the march yeah. was, I thought that was um, extremely um, poignant. Yeah, there's a, there's a silent part to remember all the people who died. And that was as we walked past the block with the Dunedin Hospital on it. Yes, that was very telling because, you know, we have got a hospital to go to. I mean, the other thing I noticed was that um, as well as us working one way, Walking the other way were all these students who've just graduated in their gowns. Yeah. You know? And that's wonderful to see that with their yeah. families celebrating that. But just thinking, actually, in Gaza, you know, it, there's nobody graduating. In fact, the universities have been bombed, the schools have been bombed, you can't even go to school. Mm. You know, it's, mm. it's horrendous. Um, and the other thing that happened there was that um, there was a Palestinian man who was a journalist. Um, talking about his life and he was telling the story of that in 1966 when the Israelis invaded um, he was one and a half years old with his family and the Israelis came in and he had four uncles and the Israelis shot two of them and one uncle was holding him in his arms Mm. so everybody thought well they won't shoot him but they did shoot him and they wounded this man in the leg who walks with a, a really bad limp from that time. One uncle managed to run away. As a result of that, his way of, of trying to fight the Israelis was to become a journalist. So he trained as a journalist and reported on what's been happening in Gaza since that time, um, has been in prison several times. Um, and recently, one time when he went out I'm not sure what it was, I think it was a conference, 2017, he said um, the Israelis wouldn't let him back in and deported him to Malaysia. But he's, he's able to come here and he's very grateful for being here. Um, and, he, and he had his daughter who'd also been blinded by a, a later incursion. Um, and she hadn't been given treatment in, in Israel. And I guess that's probably another thing just to remind ourselves, you know, it comes back to that thing we talked about in an earlier episode about the situation being complex. In other words, these things are not things that have just happened this year. No. This, this, is, this is long, several generations old. And it like is. you say, if you've got a man who was wounded as a baby, yeah. you know, that's a lifelong reminder of the current situation. So, And there, there are people who have been living in refugee camps since 19... 19- 48. Mm. In fact, speaking with the, the lady who I was acquainted with um, through um, my previous educational life, I know her husband works for the UN in refugee camps. Um, and, you know, that's some, they're some of the biggest cities in the world. It's Those, crazy. Yeah. It's crazy. Um, we talked last week just in terms of just ticking off. Um, yeah. We talked a, a wee bit about impartiality. And I was asking um, uh, folks on Saturday about where they're getting their information from. And a lot of it seems to be coming through um, social media because that's probably about the only reporting that's possible from the ground. Apart from Al Jazeera. Yeah. I think the question I asked my friend was, you know, 
where where is the truth going to come from? Where will we see exactly what's happening on the ground? Because I think the six o'clock news tends to give us a very curated, sound-bitten version of events. And it, it does, but I guess, you know, when we were, is it biased or not biased when you see pictures of, you know, the hospitals in ruins, people wounded, you know, loads of bodies. It's you see, you, yeah, you see a lot of macro things, but in the last week I've noticed some, some micro reporting where right. they're showing um, footage filmed by people of um, photographers getting beaten up by members of the IDF, yeah. um, stuff that wouldn't be transmitted via, um, you know, the, the, the news lines, which are now coming up just through people um, using their, their, their phones as um, a media report. Yeah, yeah. And I think um, that seems to be the place to go. Um, but I was warned, you know, if you're going to go looking for that stuff, it, it's going to be pretty confronting. Yes, it, it is very confronting. And and I, I think one of the things maybe that leads on to is about um, I have some friends who, who were very, um, you know, devastated by what was happening and, and wanting to help. And they actually... They, they got burnt out because they were kind of watching too much. And uh, I think it's really important if we do want to help, we actually have to look after ourselves and our own health and mm. well-being. Mm. And personally, what I do is, well, yeah, um, I, I like playing squash, so that's a, a good time where I actually get it out of my body physically, mentally, emotionally. Yeah. But also particularly spend time in nature to, to be by the sea, be in the woods, you know, I mean... We're so lucky here in New Zealand we can do that. In Dunedin, if we can just go out, it's peaceful. Mm. There's beautiful places to go. In Gaza, you've got nowhere to go. You know, there's, yeah. there's no nature to go to because nowhere's safe. Yeah. Okay. Um, so last week we, we, we kind of touched on something that we talked about. In fact, I think we've talked about it each week, but we haven't really gone towards it. And that's sort of saying that on a bigger picture scale mm. we we've talked about what role has the united nations got and why doesn't it seem to be able to work effectively and i think when you and i were talking about starting this podcast you 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 said you know what the united nations needs is like a factory reset you know a reboot yeah um so i wondered with this week you might want to talk about where your thinking is with that and what sorts of things you've been um, pondering over in terms of, you know, what is possible. Mm. Okay. Well, it, it sort of comes back a bit to... I want to talk about my dad. And um, my dad, who was called Henry, um, was born actually in 1915, which is a long time ago. Um, and he was born in the middle of the First World War. So even though probably he wasn't aware of the actual First World War, when he was growing up, you know, in the First World War, he, he grew up in England. Um, and so in the First World War, I think over a million men were killed in action for, in England. And there would have been, I don't know how many, one million, two million, several million men who were either shell-shocked um, or, you know, what we now call PTSD or were wounded physically. So he would have grown up with that, that environment 
where you know the, the term came out maiden aunt or uh, spinster aunt you know because there just weren't enough men around um, so that's that's the kind of time he grew up in and after the first world war they started a thing called the league of nations which was their hope for the nations because it was is a main war between Germany and and England, who had actually been allies and were related by blood. You know the the ruling monarchs of both country were were related by blood. Um, and I don't I don't even remember. There's this amazing story during one time at Christmas. It was Christmas during the war where the the troops came out and played soccer against each other. Yes, it's like you know. They're normal guys, normal people. Unfortunately, it's it's always the the young men who end up as the casualties. Mm. And um, I'm I'm just having a quick look on the internet here, and it's saying that you know it was basically set up at the same time. It was it, the the covenant of the League of Nations was signed on the 28th of June 1919, okay, and it formed part one of the Treaty of Versailles. Yeah. So it was. Like you say, it was um, uh, it, it it came as a result of that war. All the war, they wanted to to prevent it happening again, mm. um, and I think they did help in in a number of minor conflicts. But as you know, um, twenty years later, or is it twenty years later? I'm thinking about it. Yes, twenty yeah. years later, this yeah. uh, the Second World War begins, which yeah. is even more horrendous. Mm. Um, so. My dad actually fought in the Second World War. He was conscripted, um, you know, and he fought in North Africa. But he was he was actually in the RAF because he had bad eyesight. He was in the sort of control rooms. Mm-hmm. But um, I, what's noticeable was my dad never talked about the war. He never talked about it, but it must have been horrendous for him because he was in the RAF and, you know, fighter pilots had an average lifespan of about six weeks. Mm. I mean, you know, lifespan in the area. Statistically speaking. Yes, yeah, statistically. Yeah. Um, so after the after the Second World finished, then everybody thought, okay, you know, we've had the First World War, the League of Nations didn't work out because we've had the Second World War. Let's set up something so this never happens again. So in 1945, they set up the United Nations. And the original tenets of the United Nations were... Uh, to settle disputes peaceably between member states mm. and if that didn't work to send in neutral peacekeeping troops to protect the civilians and, and to try and stop the war in that way. Mm. Um, because um, one of the criticisms of the League of Nations was that it was toothless. It had no, it had no um, forces with which it could um, support peacekeep right. or um, impose economic sanctions. And that was one of the, I was just reading before, that was one of the reasons that led to its dissolution is that it was toothless. Yeah, so so the United Nations actually had that, that possibility. Um, but unfortunately, within a very short time, the Security Council was set up and the veto was given to five uh, powers. Uh, and over time, that came to be England, France, uh, United States, China, and Russia. Mm. Um, and so, any resolution that goes through the United Nations could be vetoed. So we've continually seen that. 
when one of those states has been involved in conflicts that we talked about last time. Um, even though most of the United Nations are voting against it, because that one country has the veto, they cannot do anything. They can't even say, like at the moment, what's happening. Um, there was that resolution where the United States voted against having a ceasefire. They can't even say, we all want you to have a ceasefire. Um, and just currently, there's another United Nations resolution being brought up by the uh, United Arab Emirates, I think, and countries in Qatar, in the yeah. East, um, to actually say, well, let's 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 just say we want a ceasefire, you know, and then the United States is saying, oh, I'm not sure we can quite agree to that, and so they've changed the wording from ceasefire to a suspension. But um, you know, the problem that seems to be the problem is that that veto power is there. So we see, like, the world's looking on, kind of helpless like well why isn't the united nations doing anything and it's just because these these states have the power of veto all countries are equal but some countries are more equal than others i think that's exactly what it is because the permanent they're called the p5 they're the permanent seats on the security council and basically it's a a list of the the biggest forces aka the winners of um round two of the world war yeah you know, just to put a more cynical view on it. And nothing's changed. But if you think about what's happened in those countries mm. since 1940, 1946, 47, 48, you know, there's, there's been huge changes in those countries. You know, like um, the, the dissolution of the Soviet Union, the, right. um, you know, the political pendulum swinging in every country. Yeah. Um, it's almost like... Um, I, I guess I can see where you're coming by saying, well, perhaps we need to just um, revisit how that's constituted. Well, we, we need to do more than revisit. We need to reboot it. Like the term comes because from when your computer or your phone or something goes completely off and somebody's, a virus has come in and it's been, you know, I'm not sure what the term is. Uh, but anyhow, a virus come in so your things aren't working. You can do what's called a factory reboot. It means you lose all the information, but you go back to what the original uh, setting was. So if we go back to the original intention, that's what we need to do. It takes you give the United Nations a bit of, a bit of, um, you know, what was the word you said? A bit of tooth. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, a bit of bite, if you a like. A bit of bite. Yeah. Yeah. Because I noticed there's countries like India who are saying, well, why can't we have a seat? And, you know, when you consider how many people we're representing. Yeah. Um, so let's say they were to reboot it. Mm. If you could wave your magic wand, what would it look like for you? Well, it, if, I, if you could wave your magic wand, what would immediately happen is that there would be a... a the resolution would call on Israel and say, actually, you know, we demand that there be a ceasefire... And if there isn't a ceasefire, we're actually going to send in peacekeeping troops. Yes, because my research on um, peacekeeping troops is that they can only be present if both parties agree to that. Right, which is... It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. Is it going to say, yes, we can have peacekeeping troops? No, not at the moment. I'm afraid Netanyahu um, is, you know, he's backed into a corner, basically. Mm. I guess... If you made a, a global group, mm. for want of a better word, 
mm. that could um, collaborate and use its united force to pressure countries. Mm. Um, so, for example, if we, if, if we, if let's say there's two hundred countries in the United Nations, and they all agreed that what's happening is not right. And they were to impose sanctions, economic freezes, um, uh, asset seizures, things like that. Yeah. I could I can imagine some governments saying, "Well, we don't want to do that because we want to be responsible for our own destiny. We don't want some global group to be controlling what's happening on our planet." Um. Politically, yes. Yes. I can't. Uh, do you see what I'm saying? The, the, you know, for well, America to suddenly say, "Well, yeah, let's everybody make an agreement and let's do that." Yes, which is kind of hypocritical because the United States has, um, you know, trade bans on a whole number of nations around the world, mm. including Cuba since 1963, which mm. is amazing. Um, so it would take an agreement, and I was thinking about that. What we need to do is have a, have a global government because, you know, another thing that's alongside, like if you talk to young people nowadays, one of the things I hear is how distressed they are about what's happening in the environment. Correct. And they feel there's this now this thing called climate anxiety. Mm. Um, and, you know, so we actually need to work as a global nation to deal with the environmental problems, you know, to actually... Otherwise, there's not going to be a place here to for them in the future. You see, just at this moment, there's been huge floods in northern Queensland, like a metre of rain. Like, you know, this is... It's here. It's here. The crisis is here. And the world's largest iceberg yeah. has broken free and it's the size of um, Britain. You're kidding. No, um, it's just been on the news this week. They're, they've been tracking it for some time, and it's um, where is it? It's just snapped Antarctica off from Antarctica. Or? Yeah, yeah. Um, okay. Um, depending on where you get your news from, they always compare it to something that. But um, yeah, it's it's um, you know we've seen what is it an eight 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 feet a year decrease in thickness of of um, the ice. Um, in Antarctica and this thing is absolutely huge and it snapped off the tip of the Antarctic Peninsula so you can understand why people get worried but in order to have a global response to the environment because look you've spent all that money in um, copper 2023 in the Middle East this week and they've only just agreed to start phasing out fossil fuels they actually mentioned the word fossil fuels in the thing this week it would take, well, like the song says, it'd take a lot of love to get... Um... It, would, it would take a lot of love. And I think what we have to do is we have to go away from um, the people who are running our countries, people who are running the world, being people who elected because of the campaigns they do. We actually need to have people who come out of local environments who are proven people, good people, who are, who have shown that they actually care about people. I think that needs to be the actual thing. If you're going to be in government, you need to be somebody who actually cares about people, who's mm-hmm. done good works, who's not being backed by multi-million com- multi-millionaire companies. Yeah. And that's a tall that's a tall order. 
when you it's consider... It's a tall order, and, and, you know, as I said before, probably it needs to be women because, you know, men have, seem to be unable to not just retaliate the eye for an eye, tooth for the tooth. Mm. Um, you know, and needs to be... Maybe it's a movement of women who go, actually, we're not going to do this. We're not going to fight anymore because there won't be a future for our children. Mm. You know, there may be a future for you if you're rich enough and you can live in a bunker underground, but what kind of life is that? Yeah. You can't go out and see the trees, you know? Yeah. And you can't walk on the earth and feel the sea. And I was thinking that yesterday. I, was wa- I went for a walk on a beach with a friend of mine, sort of saying, you know, how lucky we are to be able to walk along here in peace and calm and without a care in the world. Yeah. And then, you know, someone on the antipodes of this country on the other side of the planet you know, that would be a dream come true for them. A dream, yeah. But we are on one small bit of rock. We are. And um, I think we need to be more aware of the fact that any decision taken somewhere else on this um, planet is going to immediately affect other people, you know. Um, It's like I was saying to you before we started this recording about the pirate... Um, situation in um, around the Suez Canal and the Red Sea that that's going to lead to supply chain issues mm. because um, the large shipping country uh, um, companies like Maersk they're they're going to go around the Cape of Good Good Hope yeah uh, around the Horn is it yeah yeah down and that's going to um, slow down the delivery of um, uh, um, you know, supplies and um, create and create pressure, and these are the pressures that are global. They're not mm. localized. Yeah. Do you remember that ship, the Ever Given, got jammed in the Suez Canal for um, six days? The world's largest container ship. Right. Uh, this is about eighteen months ago, and it and it caused absolute havoc with world trade. Yeah. Because the the canal was blocked. So so it may be that other things actually, you know make mm. us do things you know mm. and and sometimes it has to be you know we don't do things until economic things happen like my own personal self I've been thinking about getting a hybrid car for a while but I haven't kind of got round to it just driving my other gas guzzler and then recently I've just been noticing how much I have to spend at the petrol station mm. Mm. and so I'm actually in the process of buying a hybrid car you know, and, and I like to think I would have done it some time ago, but it's actually the economic thing that's making me do it. So sometimes it has to be, it has to hit our pockets somehow. And I guess if you think of the way in which the world responded to the South African apartheid system, yeah, through isolation, through economic sanctions, through um, sporting contacts, all those types of things, you know, that's human nature. We we continue to do something until it becomes in our interest not to do it. Well, I, th- I think there we... Actually, New Zealand was a very good example of a nation that actually said this is wrong. And when they we had all these um, demonstrations against the, the Springboks tour, that was an extraordinary thing because it wasn't actually just in our interest. It was in the interest of human beings. Mm. And I think in... That was a remarkable thing, and I, th- I think Nelson Mandela actually thanked the New Zealanders for that yeah. because it was a major thing. Like other countries were doing blockades, but I remember, you know, England. The reason I stopped campaigning in, when I was a student and actually went and became a monk was because I remember England, 
who had a blockade on South Africa were allowing arms from England to be sold to South Africa through a third party mm. because it would have economic consequences on England. It's kind of like, you know, what happened there? Where did the morals go? And I don't think that's any different to the current situation. Yeah. Um, you know, there's lots of there's lots of business being done in the business of supplying shells, supplying air cover. Tanks. And you look at um, Zelensky's having to go around the world cap in hand mm. to convince people to um, support him. Yeah. Uh, so, oh, boy, that's a big question. A that's global a, a government. Well, yes, you know, and one that one where people actually, you know, because we can do it, like I said before, with mm. these medical conferences, and I'm sure there's conferences and all different things that happen around the world mm. where people cooperate. Mm. And COVID's probably one of those things. Because if you look at how um, the world's resources were tuned and turned to mm. come up with a scientific solution mm. ASAP. And information was shared. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> So that kind of wraps it up for us for this week. Um, there's a possibility we could get together on Boxing Day and maybe talk about how things have turned out over the Christmas period and um, looking towards 2024. Well, hopefully next week we'll be able to say there's a ceasefire and it's going to be permanent. That would be the biggest Christmas gift we can give those people in Gaza. Yeah, that would be great. So um, until next week, um, Merry Christmas, everybody. Hope you get to spend some time with um, your nearest and dearest and that you get some of what you want, but all of what you need. May you be well, may you be happy, may you live with ease. And may you live in a peaceful world.
Take a lot.